Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I have been on a lot of video meetings this week, a lot of Zoom meetings. I'm learning to use Zoom. Uh, I had a great meeting with a friend of mine from across the state uh, this week. He, he uh, was just sharing with me some ministry he was doing, and he was sharing that. It was about four or five weeks ago now that he and his wife visited Heartland. They had never been here uh, for a service before. They had been here for special meetings and uh, came in on a Sunday morning, and there was a word of knowledge about somebody with a heart issue, came forward. He had, uh, had gone to the doctor and had a serious heart condition. I think it was one of the major arteries or something was, was collapsing or dying or something like that. Anyways, got prayer, went to the doctor a few days later, and the doctor, this was the words of the doctor. He showed him the before and after x-rays, and he said, what you're seeing here is a creative miracle. Now, that's the doctor's words, a creative miracle as veins begin to grow around that artery. So uh, just bless me to hear that, that testimony, and, and I wanted to share that with you so you can rejoice with them. All right, this morning, we're going to get into the word. Turn with me. Go ahead and turn to, uh, let's look at... Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 again. Uh, we started a new series last week on the power of the blood of Jesus. We're looking at, we're, we're looking at the blood of Jesus, and uh, we all, as believers, we know we're saved by the blood. We hear people use terminology like, I'm going to plead the blood, and, and uh, there's power in the blood, but often we don't understand the real theology behind those phrases. And the problem with that is what you don't understand, you're not able to leverage. So there are things there's, there's power in the blood that God wants you to be able to utilize. He wants you to be able to leverage. He wants you to be able to actually use as a weapon against the enemy. But if you don't understand the blood of Jesus, you don't understand why there's power in it, you're not able to really utilize the blood of Jesus like God intended. And so last week we got into a study on the blood and we looked at, we began looking at three different arenas in which the blood of Jesus is used. Number one, it's used uh, in relation to heaven and heaven's demands. It satisfies the demand of God. And so that's the first, that's the foundational reason that the blood of Jesus is powerful. Number two, it it answers the need of man. So it, it satisfies the demand of God, but it answers the need of man. And that's what we're planning on getting into this morning. And then God willing, next week, we're going to look at how it also answers the accusation of hell. And so there, the blood of Jesus is relevant in all three arenas. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting verse in Colossians chapter 1. It says that God hath reconciled all things to himself whether things in heaven or things on earth, through Christ's blood. It's an interesting verse, that the blood of Jesus is actually reconciling things in the heavens back to God. What does that mean? Well, maybe we'll get into that here in the next few weeks. But the blood of Jesus is far, 
Uh, it's far beyond what many of us realize. The, it, it encompasses far more than we realize. And so uh, in looking at these three arenas in which the blood of Jesus is utilized in answering the demands of heaven, satisfy, or in ne- meeting the need of man, and uh, answering the attack or the strategy of hell, uh, in these, these three arenas, the foundational one is the demand of God. God is man's biggest problem. Matter of fact, if you don't solve the problem of God, you don't have to worry about the enemy. He is, he is an afterthought. God is your biggest problem. And God answered the, the problem of God in the blood of Jesus. And so last week we were looking at why is the blood valuable to heaven? Why is the blood valuable to God? And that is the foundation because if we don't understand why it's valuable to God, we're never going to be able to utilize it to answer our own human need. And what I mean by that is this. There, there are two, uh, two facets of guilt that the blood deals with. The first is legal guilt. It answers the demand of heaven. Legal guilt, our legal guilt before God. We are guilty before God because of our sin, and the blood of Jesus answers for our legal guilt. The problem is there are a lot of believers who have had their legal guilt taken care of through the blood of Jesus. They're righteous before God, but their psychological guilt as a human being still nags them and holds them back in the things of God. They know heaven is their eternal destination, but they're not able to really live as a strong, productive believer on earth because they're still so connected to their past by psychological guilt. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the blood of Jesus that answers the problem of legal guilt also answers the problem of psychological guilt. And we see this in the scripture. We're going to look at that this morning. But until you understand that the blood of Jesus answers the problem of legal guilt before God, you'll never be able to resolve your psychological guilt. Now, uh, we talked about last week how those who are sincere... They really want to please God. Their conscience is sensitive towards God. They really do want to please God. They're sincere in their walk with God, yet they don't understand the power of the blood, the power of the gospel. Those are the people who are most susceptible to both legalism, the legalism that uh, wrong teaching from the church, and condemnation from the enemy. Uh, If you are If you don't understand the blood of Jesus, if you don't understand the gospel, and you're not sincere, your conscience won't bother you because you really don't care when you fail. It's those that are sincere but don't understand the blood that are susceptible to condemnation. And condemnation is the primary strategy of hell to make you unproductive, to keep you from all that you were called to be. And so we first need to understand why God values the blood so that you and I can value the blood. When we understand why God values the blood, we can utilize the blood to resolve psychological guilt. And so the foundation of it all is why does God value the blood? So we looked last week in Hebrews chapter 2. We looked at that little overview. It's a quotation from Psalm chapter 8. And then the writer of the Hebrews adds to it. But in Psalm chapter 8, it says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, made him a little lower than the angels, and put everything under his feet. 
And so it's a picture of God's original design that God created the world under man's authority. But the writer to the Hebrew adds this, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. In other words, what God created, the created order that God uh, designed was disrupted through the fall and we abdicated our human authority. And so yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. And then the writer of the Hebrews introduces God's answer. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. And God, God uh, used Jesus to bring uh, many sons to glory. So he gives us this, this overview of redemptive history, original design, the effects of the fall, and then the incarnation and God's redemption, uh, how God's going to fix this problem. And he fixed it through the blood of Jesus. Now, if you look in Old Testament theology, if you look in the Old Testament sacrificial models, you'll see that the, the sacrificial animals were uh, foreshadowing what Jesus would mean to us as the sacrificial lamb. And the lambs were prepared, they were examined, they were prepared, they were offered, then they were, uh, th- then they were applied, and then... We, then they know how to enforce that sacrifice. So let me walk you through this. Number one, the sacrificial lamb had to be prepared. Part of that preparation is there was an examination of the lambs, of the, the sacrificial animals. In fact, that's why uh, when Jesus cleared the temple, he said, you've made my house of prayer into a den of thieves. It's because the corrupt religious system had sacrificial animals in stalls out there, and they had money changers that would exchange money at a higher rate, and they would reject perfectly good lambs and then force you to buy their lambs, and in that way they were making money, and it it created this, this anger in Jesus that they had made it into a den of thieves. Why? Because the priests had to examine the lamb. This gives us a clue as to why the blood of Jesus is powerful. The blood of Jesus is powerful because as we said last week, and I had the, the address wrong, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13, says that the life is in the blood. The life in Jesus' blood is a life lived in perfect obedience to God. Now, we talked about it last week, and this is an important point, that the blood of Jesus is not powerful. It's not value. God doesn't value it out of some sentimentality. He's not looking at it saying, well, it's the blood of my son, and I love my boy. And so, therefore, his blood is valuable because that's my boy. That's not the case. Although that would be understandable, that's not why it's valuable to heaven. The reason it's valuable to heaven is Scripture is very clear. Hebrews, or yeah, Hebrews chapter 5, it says that Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. The life in the blood of Jesus was a perfected life. It was a life that had met every righteous requirement of God, every righteous requirement of heaven. And so when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the life he lived. It's the life in the blood. It's not that it was merely innocent blood. It's that it was perfected blood. 
Oswald Chambers, the great uh, Christian writer of, of so, uh, about a century ago, he wrote the famous book, My Utmost for His Highest. He had some great writings on this concept of Jesus being perfected. He said this, he said, Jesus' uh, innocence as a baby was not our innocence, the innocence of our order of things. It wasn't, Jesus' innocence and our innocence are different. And he went on to say that innocence is nothing to be bragged about. It wasn't that Jesus offered an innocent life to the Father. He offered a perfected life. And Oswald Chambers went on to talk about how the, the, the life of Jesus wasn't an innocent life. It was a perfected life. And he said, innocence is nothing to be bragged about because innocence has never been challenged. Innocence has never had an opportunity to sin. But purity has been confronted and it passed the test and it retained its moral, uh, its moral standing. So the, the, the perfection of Jesus was not an innocence, it was a purity. He had gone through every temptation. He had suffered every temptation and, and maintained his moral purity. And scripture is very clear, once made perfect. So the life of Jesus must be looked at through the lens of this perfecting process you and I refer to as discipleship. We refer to it as being brought to glory, as maturity. These different terminologies in the New Testament, Jesus was being made perfect by the Father. You see, God had a dream way back in Genesis chapter 2. He said this, let us make man in our own image. And God has determined that he will have a man in his own image. He will not allow that word to return void. And so when he made Adam in his image and set him on that developmental process to bring him to glory, and Adam failed and derailed the process, what did God do? He sent his son as the second Adam to pick up where the first Adam left off. The first Adam was tempted in a garden, paradise. The second Adam was tempted in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. And so he went through temptation. And we need to understand that Jesus' temptation wasn't merely the 40 days in the wilderness or the few days after the finish of the 40 days, but he was tested throughout his life. It says that Jesus was perfected by the things he suffered. He suffered when he was tempted, it says in Hebrews chapter 2. It says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. That's why we talked about last week how Jesus in actuality was not born perfect. He was born innocent, but he was made perfect by the things he suffered. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that it's fitting that Jesus was made perfect by the things he suffered because in bringing many sons to glory, that's how you and I will be made perfect. That's the, the good news, bad news this morning, that God is perfecting us. He's confronting our will. This is how uh, maturity, this is how us being brought to glory, this is how perfection happens, completion happens. God is zealously after all he has pounded into you by creation. He wants to bring out by sanctification. He wants to bring out all of your potential. How is he going to do that? By allowing you to be tested. He's going to confront your will through choice. Just like in the garden, Adam and Eve uh, were, were presented with a choice. God took a tree 
which he forbade them to eat, and he stuck it right in the middle of the garden. He didn't put it off to the side with razor wire and AK-47 carrying angels to keep them away from it. He was confronting their will because it's through choice that we grow morally. We have to pass the test. And so as they were making good decisions, they would grow into all they were called to be. We know that one of their first decisions, if not the first decision, they failed. And so they derailed the process. That's why it says that Jesus became the pioneer of our salvation in Hebrews chapter 2. He was forging a way back into the plan of God, blazing the path so you and I could follow and we could be made perfect. There's a whole lot behind what we just said. One of the things we need to realize is God is zealous, not just about conversion, but about discipleship. God is after everything he put within you. He is jealously, zealously going after, bringing out, manifesting what he put in you by creation. He's going to bring out of you by sanctification, by development. God has put a, an expression of his nature and of the kingdom of heaven in you that will never be realized this side of heaven without you coming into your own. And you need to see it like that. There's something that God has put in you that he wants to express to the human race, to this hour of human history. It was for this moment in human history you were born. And so there's much more on the line when we are tempted and we, we are, we're struggling with making the right choices. It's not just some momentary lapse. The, the kingdom of heaven is, is standing with bated breath, waiting for you to make the right decision so that you can fuel God's purposes in the earth. So the reason Jesus' blood is valuable is that it's the finished life. It's the perfected life. Uh, again, we said last week, if Proverbs, or, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. His final act of obedience was to take a leap into eternity, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. After he's already said, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? That, that wrenching of that relationship, he still entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And it was that final act of obedience. And in so doing, he could say, it is finished. What was finished? God's plan for man. The dream of his heart that he had whispered way back in the garden, let us make man in our own image. And he finally had a man in his own image. And so we pick up in Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to what it says. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. I'm reading verse 11. About to read verse 12. He's saying that when Jesus entered as the high priest and as the lamb who has shed his own blood and then was presenting that bowl of his own blood as the lamb and as the high priest to the father, he didn't go through the inferior tabernacle on earth. He literally went into the, 
the, the, original, the, the original blueprint that Moses saw on the mountain tried to replicate on earth. He saw the throne room of God, and Jesus walked into the throne room. Listen to this. This is astounding. Verse 12. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. When it says, by his own blood, what it's saying is that he entered the, 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 the presence of God by virtue of his own earned right to do so. He was entering based upon his own righteousness. There is only one man who has ever lived that has earned the right that retains the, the moral superiority to go into God's presence based on his own earned right to do so. And it was Jesus. And that was him going in by his own blood. That was the value of the blood. And when he presented it to the Father, as the priest would year after year after year, the blood of the sacrificial lambs, and then they would back out with fear and trembling, Jesus walked in boldly before the throne of grace and, and essentially was saying, Father, what you You've desired all this time was a man who would complete the image stamped upon his nature. What you put into me by creation, I've completed by the process of sanctification. I've obeyed you even unto death. And now I present to you this finished life. So God could then say, it is finished. And rend the veil and allow us to enter in based on the blood. So listen to what it says here, verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So he's referring to the old covenant uh, practice of not only sprinkling blood, but they would sprinkle the, the ashes of the heifer on them and so thereby they would sanctify them for a period of time only to have to return the next year. But listen to verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The writer of the Hebrews tells us that the primary utilization personally for you and I Using the blood of Jesus towards ourselves is to cleanse our conscience. When we use the blood of Jesus towards the Father, it's to satisfy his demand of a perfect life. Again, let me just, just make sure we have this foundational understanding because if we don't understand this, it will, you will not be able to cleanse your conscience nor will you be able to stand against hell utilizing the blood of Jesus towards the enemy if you don't understand. The reason the blood of Jesus is valuable to God because it answers to God for every righteous requirement God ever had for man. So much so that God could say, it is finished. I will now deal with man through my son's righteous life. Jesus satisfied every requirement of God. That's why he told his cousin John, I must fulfill all of righteousness. He, every jot and tittle of the law was fulfilled by Jesus so that he could offer his life as the completed life. So when we use it towards the Father, it answers on our behalf 
giving, providing a righteous life for God. When we use it towards ourself, we use the blood of Jesus to wash or cleanse our conscience. And then we are able to use it towards the enemy. There is a progression if through these arenas on how we utilize the blood. When we know how it satisfies God, we can then begin to use it to cleanse our conscience. And only when we understand how it can cleanse our conscience can we use it to shut down the accusation of the enemy. If we're not clear on the first one, we'll, we'll fail in the second arena. If we're not clear on the first and second arena, we'll never be able to stand in the third and so it says that we cleanse ourselves of a guilty conscience. Listen to verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Isn't that fascinating? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the body of Jesus became the curtain that was rent so that you and I could go into the holy of holies, the heart of God himself, through the curtain that was Jesus' body. It's, an, it's a fascinating thing. Verse 21, and since we have a great high, high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Twice we see this terminology of the sprinkling having to do with the conscience. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament speaks of how they utilize the blood of the sacrificial animals, the, the sacrificial animal's blood had to be shed, but then at times it was sprinkled. And those were two different practices, two different things happening there. The New Testament application of these two separate practices fall under the headings, the theological headings of justification, the shed blood, and sanctification, the sprinkled blood. The shed blood answers to God on our behalf. It wipes out our sins, not just wiping out our past, but it also provides for our future. And this is important. This is why it was important that Jesus not merely be innocent. His innocence could have answered for my sinful past. It could have wiped out my past, but it would not have provided me with the power to live a righteous future. But because Jesus faced every temptation and conquered it, because he lived a righteous life, he not only didn't do the wrong things, he did the right things, and he didn't just do some right things, he rode this thing to the end, becoming obedient unto death, he completed a righteous life. So in the blood of Jesus, I not only have an answer to wipe out my past failures, in the blood of Jesus, I find the power to live a righteous future. Because in his life, I have the completed righteousness of God. I have the righteous life. And so that's in the shed blood of Jesus. That is justification. But the priests didn't just 
shed the blood and let it drip onto the ground or present it in the bowl once a year to the Father, pouring it over the, the mercy seat, they would all, there was another utilization of blood. They would take the blood and they would dip their finger in and put it on the, the thumb and the big toe of the priest, or they would take hyssop, which was a form of, of a plant or weed, a flowery weed, and they would dip it in the blood and they would shake it on the priests to sanctify them. When Moses read the law, he shook it on the law, and then he shook that hyssop. He sprinkled the people with the blood. And in so doing, it says he sanctified them. He was setting them apart for obedience unto that law. And unto, you know, the priests were sanctified so that they could then uh, live that, the life of a priest. And so there was the shedding of blood, but there was the sprinkling of blood. There was justification and there was sanctification. Now, uh, many of you are familiar with those terms. Some of you may not be. Justification is a theological term that really sums up the, the concept that we've ma been made just before God. We've been made righteous before him based on the righteousness of Christ. We come in by the blood of the lamb. When we come before, before God, we, we, we cry out to him, God, I know that I don't have, I know the one thing that you require of me is a perfect life. I don't have that in and of myself, but I have it in this bowl of blood. Because the life of Jesus, the completed life, that has fulfilled every righteous requirement God had for man. He fulfilled the dream of God. That life is in this blood, and I present it to you. I come in based on the blood of the lamb. I come in under this life. That's the, the idea of justification. Sanctification is the process of this legal standing becoming my living behavior. Okay, so this legal standing, I am in, I'm under the blood. Well, sanctification is the process by which I'm being conformed into his image. Matter of fact, there's an interesting verse. Hebrews is really the, the book on which we study to learn about the blood of Jesus. We, you know, Romans has some, some interesting material on the blood. There's some other uh, writings of Paul that, that have some little, little nuggets here and there, but, but it's Hebrews that really has uh, the writings that are so rich on the blood of Jesus. And he says in, in Hebrews... Uh, he talks about the, we who are 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 holy. We we who are holy are being made righteous. I'm trying to find it here. We who are holy are being made righteous. It really captures both of those. We are righteous before God legally, but we're being made holy through the process of sanctification. And so there's a, a work that's done in our heart. The beginning of the sanctification process is resolving psychological guilt, the cleansing of our conscience from acts that lead to death. The sad fact is there are a lot of believers who have heaven as their eternal home. They're, they're going to heaven, but they struggle on earth because they've never really gotten a hold of the blood of Jesus, and they've never really come out from underneath that strategy of hell, which is condemnation. And the reason they're susceptible is even though they know their, their past was wiped out by the blood of Jesus, they don't understand that the blood of Jesus will 
uh, cleanse their conscience. I shared last week how uh, as a new believer, man, I struggled so much with condemnation. I remember it was about five years into my walk with God, four or five years. I was in Bible school, and I remember just hitting a wall of condemnation. And it was, I had been ma- I'd made vows to God about fasting and intercession and Bible memorization. And, and I was spending time with the Lord, and I never felt like I could do enough. And, and I had this weird thing in my mind. I had, I had created this composite man of God that I was supposed to be. I took the, the, the greatest qualities from every man of God I could find in history and made, made this composite man, and that's what I'm to be. And, and I was trying to live up to that, and the enemy was using that to just condemn me. And I was very sincere, which made me susceptible because I also didn't understand the blood of Jesus. I remember laying in my dorm room on my face, crying out to God and saying, God, I'm done. I I, I can't live this Christian life. I can't do it. And as a indication of my wrong understanding of the gospel, I actually told the Lord this. I said, Lord, I guess I only had four years in me. Like it was, you know, me doing it anyway. So obviously I had a wrong concept. But at the time it was so real, I thought, it's what Paul is addressing in Galatians. He said, you were justified by the Spirit. Do you think you're going to be sanctified or you're going to grow in grace by your own works? No. It's by the Spirit that we are made righteous. But it's only as we understand that the blood of Jesus is our approach to the Father, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, and we come in based on the blood of Jesus. And then when we understand that, when guilt begins to rise, when our conscience begins to bother us, when the enemy tries to leverage either what we did that we shouldn't have done or what we should have done that we didn't do, we come under the blood and we plead the blood. We, we understand how to use the blood to cleanse our guilty conscience. We take the shed blood and we use it as the sprinkled blood to cleanse our conscience. We begin to realize that we're made righteous by him. And it, we never outgrow our need to enter his presence based on the blood of the lamb. I don't care how mature we become, how long we've lived for the Lord, we always enter by his righteous life. And God loves us enough. He loves us enough. He will never allow you rest in your own righteousness. He will always expose the faulty foundation of your own righteousness until you absolutely abandon it and you realize, I can't do this thing. Where you end, the Christian life begins. That's where it gets fun. In actuality, this is what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about. Romans 6, it tells you, you are dead. But Romans 7 essentially says, I don't feel dead and I ain't acting like it. Because of what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And Paul cries out to God. He said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he bursts into Romans 8. Romans 8 is, has been called Paul's Pentecost. It's, it's the life in the Spirit. It's living the righteous life. It starts with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. It's the victorious Christian life. But Paul had to come to the end of himself in Romans 7. 
Paul was still trusting in his own righteousness, his own ability to please God. And he had to be brought to the end of himself. And God loves us enough that he will allow us to come up short again and again until this is a settled issue. I cannot approach heaven based on my own rags of righteousness. I have to come by the blood of the Lamb. And once that is a settled issue, we have the foundation to begin to build upon. But if you live under, if you, if you try to approach God based on your own righteousness, if you're still feeling, if you come into worship and feel like, oh, I'm not worthy, you're right, you're not, in and of yourself. But you're not in and of yourself. You are clothed in the blood of the Lamb. You're clothed in his life, his righteousness that has fulfilled every righteous requirement. And when we live from that place, God can begin to build on that and build maturity. The fact is, a guilty conscience, people who are struggling with their conscience fall easy prey to sin. Because a guilty conscience locks your life on failure, defeat, and the things of the flesh. There's a reason that the threshold of Romans 8 the way to get into the victory of Romans 8 from the, the defeat of Romans 7 is you've got to cross the threshold of verse 1, which says, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there's no condemnation. He becomes our covering. And we, we, we approach the Father boldly before the throne of grace based on his righteousness and when we do that, then God can begin to build in us that character. But until that work is done, everything else is on hold. Because you'll always, you'll, you'll continually come up short. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 real quick here. Romans 8, uh, I want to say verse 4. Romans 8 verse 4. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So what we couldn't do the law was powerless to do something, but the problem was not in the law. The problem was in sinful, weak man. And what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son to complete it for us. And he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Here's the key. What Paul is saying is that once we understand his completed work and we stand on that ground of his righteousness, we are no longer susceptible to the accusation of the enemy. We are no longer vulnerable to that, the, the, the plaguing conscience and the, the enemy using that to, to pull us off the ground of Christ. Once we have that, the spirit can begin to go to work to bring our behavior up to that, uh, up to that standard. The Spirit of God begins to live in us, and we live in cooperation with Him. Why is this so crucial? In Jesus' teaching on the vine, what, 
what Paul calls walking in the Spirit, the life in the Spirit, what theologians refer to as Johannine theology or John, the Apostle John's theology that he gives to us in John 14, 15, 16. It's his, his teaching on Jesus, uh, Olivet, you know, his replacement for the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking about uh, he is the vine, we are the branches. It's the abiding in him. What Paul refers to as life in the Spirit, John refers to as abiding. What Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. John says, I can do nothing without him. It's, I've got to be grafted into the vine, and the life of Jesus has to flow through me. But I've got to be connected. I've got to be abiding. What keeps us connected to Jesus? That understanding that I come boldly before the throne of grace. So many believers live outside the throne room. They cower outside the throne room feeling unworthy. And they think, if I'll just spend a little time in the penalty box because of that thought I had or that thing I did, and they repent, but they still sit outside the penalty box because they think if they wait a little while, then they'll have paid for their own sin, and then they can go back into worship. And if you live like that, the Lord will allow you to to continue to come up short on that because he loves you enough, he's not going to allow you to live in a susceptible state to the enemy's accusations. You've got to stand on the finished work of Christ. When you know the, the, the value of the blood before God, you can then value it and use it on your own life and begin to cleanse your conscience. And what, what Hebrews, we just read it, you come boldly before the throne of grace. You can come before the Father we need to live in the secret place. We need to live in the throne room. I remember Sandra Collier told me years ago, when I was just a young guy, she said, I was talking to her about going to get prayed up. She says, Dave Olson, she used to always call me Dave Olson. She said, Dave Olson, I don't get prayed up, I abide. Man, that was a revelation for me. That we can live in that abiding place in his presence the way the enemy tries to sever us from that abiding is through accusation. Let me close with this story. Years ago, I was working at Teen Challenge and had, had just come on staff and was probably about two years in. And, and the Lord was, had just been teaching me about this. And I was towards the end of the time where the Lord was building this foundation in my life because I'd, I'd been so unstable in my, my security in a relationship. I'd, I always felt like God was displeased with me. I, I felt like I lived under this cloud of divine displeasure because I just wasn't good enough. And it was, it was a, a, my mind had not been renewed. My conscience was condemning me. The word conscience, con with science knowledge. The knowledge I had was condemning me because I, I had to renew my mind. I had to reprogram my mind. I had to put new knowledge in there. I had to, I had to unlearn some wrong belief systems about who God was. And so my conscience was condemning me and, and God was just training me and teaching me what I'm, what I'm talking about over these weeks here. And I went, went downstairs to, in Teen Challenge, we would have, the students would go into the classroom and have their devos, we called them, their devotions. They would study a, a passage of scripture and write a little writing on it. And the staff would meet in the, the, uh, the, the dining room, and we would have our own devotions, and one of the staff members would share something out of the Word, and we'd have a short discussion, and then we'd go up to worship. 
And that morning, there was a, one of our staff, a guy named John, he had been a pastor. He shared out of uh, the book of, uh, he was talking about judges and, and uh, all of that. No, it was out of the book of Jonah. Yeah, he was talking out of the book of Jonah. And he began to talk about the Ninevites, what kind of people these people were, and why Jonah had a beef with them and didn't want to intercede for them. And he talked about some historical studies that had been done on the Ninevites. He said they would literally uh, skin people alive. They had this one game. They would, they would take a guy and they'd say, okay, if you can get across this field before we catch you, you're a free man. Well, they'd heard about the skinning alive thing, you know, thought, hey, that, this is a good option. And they'd take off running. What they didn't, the prisoner didn't know is that these Ninevite guards had already made a bet on how far the guy's body would run without his head. And they would get on a horse and they would run up behind him on a horse and sl- snip his head off with a sword and his body would keep running and they'd laugh and laugh and and uh this was what our our staff member john was sharing with us and i'm thinking ooh, that's gross i'm gonna start my day with that and you're probably wondering the same pastor dave why are you sharing this and so we went up to worship with that picture in my head and as i'm worshiping the lord the lord clearly spoke to me and he said david that's exactly what the enemy does with you he cuts you off at, with, from the head and makes bets on how far you'll be able to run. You see, Jesus is the head, and we need to abide. We need to stay connected to him. And the enemy, again and again, he is in pursuit of you, and he's trying to sever you from your connection with the head. And what is the sword he uses? It's the sword of accusation. If he can bring guilt and condemnation, if he can bring accusation, what it does is it causes us psychologically to withdraw from the secret place, withdraw from God's presence, and we stand on the outside wishing we could go in, hoping that if we'll spend a little bit of time in the penalty box, maybe then we'll be good enough to get back in and enter into his presence. And the fact is, we're never going to be able to enter by our own righteousness, We will never outgrow our need for the blood of Jesus. There is only one worthy to enter based on the virtue of his own righteous life. And that's the life that you and I clothe ourselves in. And so when we understand this, it gives us defense against the accusation, the accuser of the brothers. It gives us defense against the accusation of the enemy and keeps that connection Some of you desperately need a revelation of the sprinkled blood. You understand the shed blood. You understand that heaven's your eternal home. But you've yet to understand that the same blood that pays your way into heaven and eternity pays your way into the throne room now, and it's the foundation of your righteousness and and your sanctification. And we need to understand that that one thing, that as we we begin to use the blood not just to meet the demands of heaven, but to need our, meet our own need of cleansing our conscience. It keeps us connected to God. We abide in him. I want to pray. I want you to lay your hand on your heart, and I'm just going to picture you in your living room or wherever you're at praying. And uh, I want to pray that God would give you a revelation and that the Lord would teach us as a house over these next few weeks on the power, the value of the blood of Jesus. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. And Jesus, I thank you that you came. 
that you didn't just suffer for a few hours at Calvary, that you lived a life of suffering, that you left the glories of heaven, that you diminished, you, you, you condescended and took on a human body for time and eternity, and that you walked among us and you obeyed every righteous requirement and then offered yourself up as the sacrificial lamb and as the curtain, your flesh was torn so that we could enter in. Now, Lord, I'm asking God for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, that you would re reveal to us the power of your blood. And Lord, in these coming days, I ask God that you would make us a people that would learn how to use this blood, not just towards you and towards ourselves, but towards the enemy. That it would be the weapon you made it to be in our hands and would we would be skilled and knowledgeable in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, if you prayed with me today, if you need to get right with God, I'm going to ask you, reach out to us online. We want to we wanna minister to you. We're going to do whatever we can to help you in your walk with God. Uh, if you don't have a ch home church, or maybe you're, you've tuned in and you don't, you're too far away to even attend Hartman, tune in. We're here weekly. We love you. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.